Welcome to a new spin on autism. Answers with host and international speaker and performer, Lynette Louise. Besides working on her doctorate in psychophysiology, Lynette has raised eight children, six adopted, and four of them falling somewhere on the autism spectrum. Laugh with her, cry with her, as she talks to both experts and parents and takes you through the often confusing, sometimes frustrating, sometimes overwhelming, but always fascinating world of autism. Hello and welcome. This is a new spin on autism I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. I love that, the Brain Broad, because I travel abroad helping brains make sense. Okay, uh, today's going to be a wonderful show, as they all are. I am blessed with all the people that are willing to come on this show and share the raw details of their personal life story, and then add the professional piece, and that's the case here today. We're going to talk with a medical doctor who is a surgeon and is also the parent of an autistic child. Lovely family. I've worked with them myself. I totally admire and adore this group. I am so thrilled to have Paul Thessiger come onto the show and talk to us about what it was like to discover that their child was autistic and that the world of medicine hadn't prepared them for it. At least that's what I'm pretty sure he's going to say. So let's find out. Um, Don't forget to stay to the end of the show where we will have stories from the road. And okay, 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 I'm going to be the great guest giveaway. All right, so rather than go on and on and on, I know Paul has a short amount of time available for us today, so he's, I think he's talking to us in between patients, so let's go right ahead and talk to Paul. So this is Paul Fessiger. Thank you so much for being willing to be with us today, Paul. I really, Thank really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Okay. You're welcome. So let, let's get right to it. You and your wife are both doctors. We are. Mm-hmm. So... Here you are, you go to medical school, you get your specialties, you become doctors, and then you end up with a child who has autism. Were you prepared as a result of your training for raising a child with autism? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> the end. Hang Absolutely up. Absolutely not. So uh, in medical school, in fact, I'm not even sure if we were taught anything about autism. Um, I first heard the term uh, when my brother uh, informed me that his son was being diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, and I had to look that up as well because I wasn't exactly sure what that was. And that was a few years before we got the news of our diagnosis for our son, Joel. So absolutely it didn't prepare us for the devastation. Um, I guess it did prepare us for taking action and for looking at the different options objectively, but it certainly didn't prepare us emotionally for what we were going to have to go through. Okay, and then let's just back it up a little bit and give people some background. So clearly you've already answered one of the questions that often comes up, which is, you know, is there a genetic relationship with this challenge? Is there anyone else in the family that has something like that? So Mm -hmm. you did have it somewhere else in the family. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your family. Give us a a sort of a picture of your family. Well, we are um, an interesting family. My father was a psychiatrist, actually. He was a neuropsychiatrist, worked a lot with the brain. Uh, He was a brilliant man, uh, photographic memory. He could recite pages and pages and pages of text from memory. 
Um, he did have some slight quirks to him, too, a little bit of a attention to detail issues and so forth. Um, we, the children, we grew up normally. We, we didn't have any pressing issues as far as I was aware. I think uh, subsequent to this, I was told that my brother might have been dyslexic when we were younger, but during that era, we weren't um, informed of everything. We were sometimes kept in the dark about certain things. Um, I went through school smoothly. He struggled a little bit more, but we both came out on the other end very well. He went on to become an airline pilot, and he flies um, jumbo jets now. He flies the 787 Dreamliner, and he's very good at it. I went on to medical school and went into surgery, and I, we have a baby sister who pretty much sailed through school as well. She did very well, and she works in the uh, hospitality industry now in hotels and so forth. So it's a it's a pretty interesting family. We were originally from the Caribbean, from Jamaica, mm-hmm. and uh, lo and behold, uh, my brother told me after his son was born that they were thinking there may be some issue, and they were calling it Asperger syndrome. And uh, subsequent to that, my son, my firstborn son, was my first son was born, and we were told that he was going to be um, delayed, and then we were told that it was a regressive autism. So there's definitely some kind of genetic link at play. Uh, every every disease has a has a genetic component to it. However, that said, uh, the explosion of autism in the last 15, 20 years, you can't explain it by genetics alone. There's just no way. Genetic uh, occurrences happen at fixed rates. Uh, throughout a population. Uh, for example, if you look at Down syndrome, if you look at Fragile X syndrome, if you look at Rett syndrome, if you look at uh, any of the um, common um, genetic disorders, they happen at fairly fixed rates throughout the population. Whereas autism has been rising exponentially for the last decade and a half. And it's pretty alarming now how many children are coming down with it. And um, so there's got to be an environmental pressure that's kicking these kids over the edge to be diagnosed with this problem. And that's what we're interested in, finding out what that is and how we can address it. Okay, so let's talk about, um, first of all, just a little clearer picture of your actual family, your immediate family. Mm-hmm. So you have how many children? So I have three children. I have a daughter who is older, and she's neurotypical. And uh, she was born in New York and completely normal, Apgars, everything developed normally. She's very intelligent. She she does very well in school, and she's in college now. Um, we have Joel, who has been diagnosed. He is 11 years old now. He is also super intelligent. In fact, he is looking to be a, a savant. He knows a lot of obscure details and information, which is just un- unbelievable. We don't know how he knows it, but he struggles with routine uh, things that a lot of kids don't struggle with. And then we have a nine-year-old who is also neurotypical, who is developing normally, and he's in school as well. So that's that's the immediate family. And of course, my wife and I uh, have been together now for 16 years. Mm-hmm. And you're both doctors. And what's her specialty? She is a holistic internist. So she's a board-certified internist who has developed more of a holistic practice with integrative and alternative therapies. And she treats uh, children who are autistic. She treats adults as well. 
Um, she also treats people with routine illnesses, hypertension, diabetes, what have you. But her approach is first to go with a natural uh, set of uh, indices rather than going straight to medication. Uh, but she will give medication if medication is warranted. And uh, so it's it's kind of an integrative approach, and it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's very cool. Mm-hmm. All right, so all right, so now we've got the the picture of your family. It sounds like maybe way back when it was just called brilliant photographic memory, quirky, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. You were all high achievers, and it does seem like very often um, there seems to be a correlation between high intelligence and some of the incidents of autism in families. So that's an interesting. It's like you get all the gifts, or or you get this sort of patchwork quilt of gifts that makes it confusing. Um, You do have a new project, Hindsight, and I am curious about that. Is that something you can talk about yet? I can. It's uh, it's a conceptual issue right now. I haven't actually launched it, but I do have a dream, and the dream is to crack the code on autism uh, by the year 2020. So I've coined it Project Hindsight, because hindsight, of course, being 2020. Right. And um, what I, I'm looking to do is bring together the, the most uh, brilliant minds, both in the medical world as well as in the behavioral world, and bring them together with the express uh, direction and goal of cracking the code on autism or the various forms of autism by 2020. And what does that mean exactly? Meaning we can determine what is causing the epidemic and we can determine concrete approaches and protocols to approach each type of the condition. For example, uh, if someone is Parkinsonian or if someone has diabetes or if someone has a particular type of cancer, there are usually protocols. Okay, you have this type of cancer. This is what I think you need to do to get into remission and then how to stay healthy from there. If you have diabetes, this is what you need to do, the diet, exercise plan, blah, blah, blah. This is the medicine you need to take, and this is how we're going to keep you healthy. The same thing should apply for autism because it is a medical illness. It's a gastrointestinal illness as well as a neurological illness. And we should have the same kind of protocols. So you have a diagnosis. This is what we're going to do to get you as healthy as possible or close to remission. And this is how we're going to have the the person make the most of their lives. And we really need to have that. And I think there needs to be an open debate about what's going on, what's environmental pressures that are causing this, in, 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 especially in boys. And I think we just need to take the lid off and just put everything on the table and not do finger-pointing and not do accusations oh. and counter-accusations and so on, just so we can get to the bottom of it so we can save some of these kids. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one mm-hmm. of the biggest problems here is everybody's afraid to speak out for all the hate that will be <laughs> launched in their direction. If you I think get uh, right it's been a problem, and I think that uh, especially here in the United States with the prevalence of legal action and, 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 and threats of legal action, and it, it makes uh, for a difficult uh, environment for honest discussion to go on, especially if you're dealing with a medical problem or an epidemic or a, or a social problem or even what I consider to be a public health uh, fiasco, which is what autism is right now, um, it will be an uphill climb to get it to the point where everyone can speak freely without without finger pointing and 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 accusations and so on. But if you look at the bigger picture, which is to save some of these children, 
and the ones who are coming up, the ones who are not even born right now, who are coming through, I think if we can all just kind of get it together, we can potentially get to that point. And if, if Project Hindsight is going to work, there has to be a certain degree of candor and open discussion that goes with it, because it's not going to work if we have to go into some dark corner somewhere in some catacomb and do the talks or the conferences. It's just not going to... It's not going to work, and then you're going to have one group trying to denounce the other one. And there's a lot of infighting right now in the special needs world, and that needs to really be mitigated. Absolutely, and you see this as a think tank then of all the more than a think tank. Uh, I, I I'm calling it a Manhattan Project because, uh, well, infamously the, the the original Manhattan Project was was commissioned to bring an end to the war, the Second World War, and unfortunately, of course, they developed this incredible atomic weapon, which they used to end the war because they didn't want it to be a protracted war. It was going to cost millions more people their lives. But they set a deadline for coming up with a weapon system to end the war. And, of course, when they brought the brilliant minds of Enrico Fermi and Einstein, all these guys together, they came up with this thing, which unfortunately now has become a a little bit of an albatross around the world and in our history. But if you set deadlines on any project and tell the people who are participating in it that we want a solution by a certain date, it's amazing the kind of things that can happen because people who are brilliant, they tend to kick into high gear when they're put under pressure if they're told that they want a, res a result is needed by a certain amount of time. Excellent. So I don't want this to be like an ongoing kind of, oh, we're doing research and, oh, we'll come up with something in the future. I'm like, no. By the year 2020, we want answers to what is going on with our children, what, is, what can we do to change the, the trajectory of this uh, situation, and how can we help the kids that are coming up now, the ones who are not even born, because... You know, we all love our kids. They're amazing children. But most of us who are in this would probably not wish this on another family um, to have to deal with an autistic situation. And even the children themselves will say, listen, this is a hard road to travel. And if we could change that trajectory for the children, I think it's something worth doing. I have to say, that's a wonderful point about uh, competition, deadlines. You know, if we don't have a point at which we have to come up with the answer, very often it just turns into lots of sort of deeper and deeper investigation without the intention to find an answer. Well, I think the irony there and where I'm going to agree with you, I'm a surgeon. I was trained as a surgeon. I trained here at Howard University and then down in Miami in surgery. And one thing about being a surgeon is that we we train under the gun. You know, when you train in general surgery, you train with patients who are traumatized, who have been shot, stabbed, or dying, you know, of some kind of trauma. You have a finite amount of time to save their life. And if you don't perform, you can lose that patient. And then it's a, a world of recriminations afterwards. So one good thing about the training that I had is that I always have been uh, pushed to give a result and, and, and in a finite amount of time. And sometimes, of course, in the early part of the training, it was a very stressful push because okay. you're talking about somebody's life. You know, if you don't throw those stitches or put that clamp on or do the right maneuver, you could lose that person right in front of you. Now, of course, the situation with autism is not as drastic, but one thing about academia is that we tend to kind of sit down and we talk and we 
drink our cappuccinos and we, you know, Just enjoy using your minds, you right? Know, that kind of thing. And then before yeah. you know it, another year passes and another one and another one. And, you know, the kids are growing beards now and they're growing up and they're becoming adults. And then we're like, okay, what do we do now? So I think we have to put some kind of deadline on it in order to get a result that... Absolutely. Uh, that, that, and that and I... Yeah. Paul, I just love the way you put it initially when you said, you know, that we need to have a similar protocol approach where we say, okay, you have autism, here's the medical piece, here's what you do, and that is so missing for every parent that is getting a diagnosis for their child. They're hearing you say that and going, oh, if only I'd have had some kind of direction like direction. that. Direction. So, Concrete right, so I, I want to come back to that, but I just want to tell everyone, you're listening to a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as The Brain Broad. Don't forget to stay to the end where we will have stories from the road. And today, as I've been doing lately, I am going to be my own, okay, 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 great guest giveaway, and I'm going to give you something I have to offer. All right, we are back with Paul Fessager. He is the, uh, a doctor and a parent of an autistic child, and we're talking about, uh, actually right now we're going to talk about what it was like when you got the diagnosis and they didn't offer you that kind of, here's what to do next. Well, we, I'll never forget, we got our diagnosis. It was official. Uh, it was done at Kennedy Krieger at Hopkins. And we both by that time knew there was something wrong. Um, our son was doing some repetitive behaviors. He was uh, doing some echolalic type speech where he would just kind of repeat what you say. Um, and, you know, he had a little bit of quirks to him that we, we figured there was something not right. And then to make matters worse, he was having a lot of gastrointestinal problems, stomach crampy pain. His his stools and his BMs were were completely out of this world. They didn't look or smell like what they normally should for a small child. So we knew we had something going on here. And then, of course, we took him there. He got evaluated, and they gave us a report. It was a very stressful time for me. I remember getting a report, reading just the first three lines, and I threw it on the kitchen table. I didn't want to read anymore. And, I, you know, I went through the typical reaction of any parent, which is a certain degree of disbelief, shock, grief. And um, But this is what I want to stress. Getting a diagnosis of something like this for one's child is very similar to a death. Now, it sounds very harsh when I say that, but I really believe it's true. Because what you deal with in terms of your emotions is similar to being told that the child that you thought you had or you were dreaming of has died. And what is rising in replacement for that is a different child. And you have to get used to the fact that that is what is going on. So the emotions you're starting to feel, the anger, the finger pointing, the arguments between you and your spouse, a lot of that is very similar to a grief reaction. In fact, it is a grief reaction. And I don't think any of the counselors or doctors really discuss that with you. You say, you're probably going to go through some grieving here. But you know, my child is alive. The child is healthy. You know, he looks healthy. But no, what has died is what your vision or your dream was for that child as it stood in your mind when he was born and when he seemed to be normal. That is going to go away and be replaced with what is now going to be a new reality for you. And you have to go through that. And it's very similar to going through the loss of of an individual, of a loved one, where you have to, you're in shock, you're in disbelief, 
you can't believe what they're telling you. You think there must be some kind of mistake. And then you go through the anger and then the finger pointing and the arguments. Whose fault was it? could it have been? You know, whose side of the family and all of this kind of thing. So we went through all of that. And then you see this incredible individual, this child, for what they are, which is just an amazing uh, human being with incredible gifts. And you don't even begin to understand the gifts they have yet because you're struggling with some of the basics. And we're, we went through all of that as well. And now we're eight years into it, nine years into it. And we love him. We've always loved him. But we've seen some of the gifts that he's bringing to the table and some of his incredible talents. And we're appreciating him for it. And we're growing together as, as, as a family. But we came close to the brink, as do all families with autism. We were right there on the edge. It could have gone either way. We could have survived. We could have split. And, um, but the, the stresses are high. And, you know, it takes a lot for a family to pull through on something like this. So it was hard. And, um, and you know, I've, it was hard for me. It was hard for my wife. And, uh, and I know it was hard for our son because he's now able to type. And he can tell us how hard it was for him. Right. And I think um, it's really important for parents out there to understand that just because they're talking to a medical doctor, it doesn't mean that that medical doctor has all this information they are then withholding callously. They actually don't know, correct? You're absolutely correct. In fact, this new form of autism or whatever is going on now, this epidemic, is catching a lot of physicians flat-footed and a lot of pediatricians flat-footed, and they don't have the training in it. They, they, they can probably give you an idea of the diagnosis, but they have no real direction about treatments. or, or any, There are no conventional treatments for autism. There's no pill to take that's going to cure it. And so you get a lot of blank stares and a lot of, you know, I'm so sorry and that kind of thing. And that just makes the situation worse, and parents tend to panic and, and, and so forth. Um, this is all part of what I'm talking about with Project Hindsight. I think if we can get a concrete situation going or more concrete situation, you can perhaps lower the level of panic that parents have when they're first told that their child may be, um, may be affected with um, some form of autism. So when you imagine uh, the parent getting the diagnosis after, let's say that Project Hindsight is successful, and we're just mm-hmm. going to believe on that, and, mm-hmm. and you know, I'll give you whatever knowledge I have. So um, let's say that, that you get there, you, you kind of figure out enough of the pieces. What, what do you imagine would be different in the way that this diagnosis would be handed out to parents? Because maybe it'll give other people something to strive for, to hear you put it into In the, the best system. of all worlds, my dream would be, Needless to say, parents usually know there's something wrong with their child by the time they go take the child in to be evaluated. They're hoping that they're wrong, but they they kind of know. So what could be different is that, of course, a child gets evaluated. They may come up with a with a with a diagnosis or a label saying, well, this may be PDD, progressive developmental delay, or pervasive delay, or or some form of autism. But instead of it being like a thunderclap or a bolt of lightning to the head, you know, where you're just, okay, what the hell am I going to do now? It's like, this is what we're going to do as a result of us thinking that your child has this problem. 
this is the first thing we want you to do. We want you to start looking at your diet, for example. We want you to start cleaning that up. We want you to go through your family tree and look at your allergy profiles and start seeing is there any allergy eliminations you can do. That's going to help the situation. Then we're going to put you into intensive therapy, behavioral therapy, neurofeedback therapy to help the brain. Various uh, exercises are going to help the child to start typing, to start communicating in other means other than language if they happen to be nonverbal. Concrete, distinct protocol approaches that the, because if you give that to a parent, they have something to hold on to and something to start working at, they'll spend less time panicking and more time working, and I think overall you'll see a better result um, for the children. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You would just, not only that, but the whole concept, you, one of the reasons you grieve is because they literally take the child you thought you had away from you and say, I don't know what you got here, but, That's you right. know. You know, like, but if, you got something, but we don't know. Right. You guys can right. maybe go home and figure it out together, and then on the drive home, you you know, there's a finger pointing starts, and the arguments begin, and before you know it, there's a meltdown, and and then you know, just to recover from that, it takes a while. And um, I think if if you can completely change that paradigm, then the other thing about this is, there are now autistics who are now teenagers and young adults who are who are communicating now, usually by typing, if not verbally. And they're telling us what is going on with them and what had gone on with them. And more famously, this young man named Ido Ketter in Northern California has a blog. It's called EdoInAutismLand.com. It's brilliant. And he just graduated high school, and he wrote so many things. And he's, in my view, is turning the whole paradigm of autism upside down. He's saying autism is, is, is not really a receptive problem, per se, as much as it is a motor problem. He says, you know, he was always understanding everything. He was always reading. He was always comprehending what his parents were telling him. He just couldn't get his body or his words or his responses to be appropriate at any given time. And so it appeared as if he was retarded or if he was not understanding. But he was. And if we start to look at it that way, and that's one of the things we can do in Project Hindsight, and so these kids have motor problems more than anything else. And he said, I just read his blog. He said, what I really need to be was get more strength in my muscles. I needed more coordination in my movements. I needed strength training so that even if I was uncoordinated, I'd be strong enough to correct myself. When You know what I mean? All these kind of things that, that before we weren't even thinking about, I think now can be put into something like a Project Hindsight protocol or different kind of protocols to treat these children. We've always known that motion is important, that the kids need to move, and they do better when they're moving. That's because their their motor cortex is, for whatever reason, there's something going wrong there. And of course, the pink elephant in the room is like, what's causing all of this? What's causing the brain injury? What's causing the motor, um, you know, maldevelopment or the misfiring of the neurons? And we won't get into that in this interview, but everything needs to brought up, be brought up on the table to be discussed. And then, they, you know, without finger pointing, without people saying you're crazy or a quack or, you know, and I think you know what I'm talking about. We're talking about inoculums. We're talking about new, you know, the immune system. We're talking about all kinds of stuff that those of us who are affected by this, we know that there is an immune component to this as well for the children. Oh, absolutely, and an inflammatory response component, inflammatory your muscle connection, all that, no stuff, doubt. everything. Happens. But, you know, we can get down, we can drill down to the core of this. And about four years ago, which is when Project Hindsight really was a kind of a seed in the back of my brain, I asked one of my best friends from high school, who is probably the brightest person I have ever met in my life, 
to meet with me here in Bethesda, and he came down. Um, he went to he went to Yale. He was at MIT, and uh, he does robotics. And um, I kind of asked his opinion about developing avatars or virtual reality um, protocols for autistics, so that they can learn literally how to be social. And I thought it was a brilliant um, response that he gave me. In fact, they were doing a lot of it already in artificial intelligence. And I thought that something like that could also be integrated into the Hindsight Project, where our children who struggled so hard with social interaction could literally go on a simulator and practice being social with avatars, with, with virtual reality friends, as it were, where they could practice like saying hello, practice trying to respond appropriately and not risk the embarrassment of having a real person reject them or what have you. There's so many things out there that could be done once once the, the right minds get together. And um, so my, my wish is for, I'm going to start assembling this team of experts. Of course, you are one of them. And I'm going to ask them to reach out to the most brilliant people they know. And we're going to form a network. And the goal is going to be to lick this thing in four or five years. And it sounds crazy. I know everybody's like, you can't do that. We don't know what's going to Yes, we can. We can do it if everybody sets their mind to it. And we, and we keep each other honest by keeping accountability. We can, we can knock this gorilla down. We can do it. I believe that, too. And by the way, I have a great spin on what you were just talking about with the avatar. So when we get together, you? when mm-hmm. you're down here, let's talk mm-hmm. about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, I want to do it for my dissertation, so we'll oh, talk about it. Yeah, there you yeah. go. <laughs> All right. So um, we have to go. So I yes. want you to give me the greatest challenge of mm. being a medical professional with a child diagnosed with autism and the greatest gift. And then we'll let you go. And thank you for your time. The greatest challenge would be trying to bury your own preconceptions of what the future would hold, the so-called prognosis, you know, because you, you, you grow up being taught about what is the prognosis, what's the outcome, what's the look. You've got to put that away as a, as a doctor and, and start believing. You know, I'm a believer. You have to believe in a higher power. You have to believe in something. You have to believe in your child. And you have to believe that anything is possible, and even including them becoming as close to quote unquote normal as 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 could be. So you have to put away that whole thing about prognosis and so on, and just open up your mind and saying anything is possible with my child. And of course, the love has to be eternal. And then the greatest gift is probably being able to read journals and articles and all this scientific stuff and kind of cut straight to to the chase about what what's likely to be, you know, relevant and what's not. And so that's, that's a big help being in the field itself. And also to have skepticism about what some people say about certain things. And I won't get into the politics now, but just because somebody gets up on TV and says something is not related to autism doesn't mean it's true. Right. And, uh, I'll just Thank leave you. it that way. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Because <laughs> yeah. we've all Thank seen you. it where, where they say, oh, yeah, this, this particular substance is great, and then they turn around a month later and say, oh, by the way, we've got to tell you it's killing people, you know. Right. So um, right. anyway, so that's that. Okay. That's wonderful. And is there, do you want to give um, contact information for yourself, for your wife? Or just sure. What? Uh, okay, great. You know, it's Paul Fessiger. Um, I'm at www.fessigerplasticsurgery.com. Um, my, you know, email is pthessiger at gmail.com, which is T-H-E-S-I-G-E-R at gmail. 
and I'm sure they could probably get more information through you uh, if they contact you. I'm here in Bethesda in Chevy Chase. I am a plastic surgeon. I know people may laugh at that, but um, I'm very happy in what I do. I do a lot of good work, and I did a lot of reconstructive work for kids as well. So I do have a heart, a philanthropic heart, and I'm going to use it to help to get to the bottom of this whole problem. It's been a pleasure, Lynette. Okay, and you know what? I think it's really a statement of our world that you had to say that, and you probably did have to say that, and that's back <laughs> to the politics, right? Like, right. I, you know, there are so many amazing things that plastic surgeons do, and it's such oh, yeah. fine, detailed work, it and is, yet you had to say that. It is a great field, you know, and in fact, what drew me to it was working with the children, and I did this a decade ago with Interplast, which is California-based, by the way, and we go around the world and we fix cleft lips and palates and yeah, kids who are dirt poor and it's it's a fantastic field but it's gained some notoriety because of reality tv but it's a great field for working with the poor if that if that's in your heart to do so. wonderful well thank all you right. so much thank you we really appreciate having thank you, you so much for having me all right, all right. Bye-bye, okay. Paul. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. okay that was paul fester he is uh, again the father of a wonderful little boy who has found his way to communicate via typing and is surprising everyone. That's the RPM method I believe they're doing. So it's an interesting approach that's taking the world by storm. It's retaking the world by storm, actually. It was called facilitation back in the day. It's funny how that all works out. Everything that's a good idea is first kind of pushed down and and met with rolling eyes and skepticism and mishandled and then it goes away and then it comes back. So um, that's kind of the case here. There's been a new upsurge of interest in facilitation via the RPM method, which stands for Rapid Prompt Method, and an interesting shift in the world of accessibility to the mind of somebody who is nonverbal. And I really, really do want to state that one more time that This is an approach that existed way back when. I remember first being so excited when my son started to type. And it was really pushed down by the results of society and the way that it was handled by the people who were then facilitating with the child. It's really important that we come to this world with an open mind, with open eyes, with a willingness to see the true evidence and not let the mess and the confusion turn us away from possibly giving gifts to the children as we raise them. And I think that's kind of what we've been talking about this whole show. So with that in mind, I'd love to offer you the gift of my book. So I'm the okay, 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 great guest giveaway. If you want a copy of Miracles Are Made, A Real Life Guide to Autism, it has the story of my son, you know, learning to facilitate and how joyous that was for us, how freeing that was for us, and then how mishandled that was and how we had to stop using it just to protect him and give him a chance to grow without it being negatively dealt with. So it's really important that you understand the history of the way that the world has sort of greeted autism over the years so that you can be updated and ready for the world that you are now embracing as you get your child's diagnosis. I think that people that don't get the history of the doctor's knowledge, the therapist's styles, they're too easily targeted for selling, you know, snake oil. So please, please, please check it out. 
Um, if you send me an email at mom, number four, evermore, because I'm mom forevermore, at Juno, that's not Gmail, that's Juno, J-U-N-O dot com. First person to send me that with Miracles Are Made in the subject line will get a free copy of my book, and I will sign it and say whatever you want on it. All right, so that's me, the OK, OK, Great Guest Giveaway. And now let's do stories from the road. Actually, this isn't my story from the road. I thought it would be wonderful since Paul mentioned Edo. I thought it would be wonderful if I read something from his blog. So this was posted on June 16th. And it's um, Thoughts on a Tough Senior Year. I graduated high school on June 5th with a diploma. My GPA was the fourth highest in my grade. I did it despite being really autistic. I did it, though I get tense and even aggressive sometimes. I did it, though I can't speak verbally and communicate by iPad or letterboard. I can't stop being autistic. It is with me all the time. I'm wired in a peculiar neurological way. Despite this, I thrived, taking AP and honors classes and doing my work along with my normal peers. The school was great and worked like a team. My teachers were supportive and respectful, and I am grateful. My last year suffered because of a crisis in one-on-one support. This nearly turned me into another person. I was so stressed and overwhelmed by the situation. But I can smile again, and I will put it behind me and move on. Because autism makes us so reliant on our one-on-one support, when it's strong, we can flourish. If it's not, we can collapse. Now that I have graduated, I will have more power to choose who helps me, so I need never be trapped again with a bad match and bad leadership. Thanks to all my teachers, the school administrators, Adrian and Hannah. Here's what I love about that and why I chose to read this particular thing. Well, first of all, because Paul mentioned this gentleman, and I thought it was perfect to read a piece. But also because in Stories from the Road, I try to tell you a little something about my life or my work experience. And in this case, I'd like to share with you the why um, of what I choose when it comes to educating. Edo mentions that there's a strong reliance on the one-on-one support. And I remember early in when we were having this struggle with facilitation, when it became very clear that my son could operate at a very high level and do mental math, uh, you know, quantum physics actually, but he couldn't, he couldn't like open a door easily or wipe himself. So this disparity between one extreme and another was so huge. And we sat there, and I looked at it, and I made a decision. And I sat and told them, here's the thing. We don't live in a society right now that can accept you being this quirky and still believe in you. So the message you're going to get from every restaurant population, from every you know, bus stop group that's waiting, from, from every bowling arena, you know, population, every place you go, the message you're going to get is that you're not smart, that you're weird, that you're different, that you're scary, that you're all of these things. And what I want for you is something else. I want you to learn how to be 
comfortable walking through these places and, and embracing people in a more natural way. And that's the hardest thing for you. But I want that more than I want your ability to do quantum physics. So we made a choice back then because of the society we lived in to take away the facilitation and to insist on the hardest thing of all, and that was verbal communication. And as a result, I kept seeking and seeking and seeking an answer, and I eventually found neurofeedback. And that did help my son talk, but his speech is still really challenged. It's hard to understand him. It's hard for him to do the motor moves necessary to get the words out clearly. And so you have to know him well, and he has to be in the best of states at the time for him to be clear. I'm not sure that it was the right choice today, but it was the right choice back then. Nowadays, with this explosion in autism, we do have a more accepting world. And one might like to believe that you could do both, that you could hand him the ability to speak at a high level via facilitation or RPM or whatever typing method they use, and at the same time, continue to insist on improvement in the verbal skills so that they have independence and don't need to walk around with a spell board. That's my hope. That's where I hope we land and eventually we close the gap on this curious disorder. But in the interim, my advice to you is choose carefully and clearly. Because when you choose, you put all of the brain power in that direction. And for these kids that are severely challenged, whatever you focus on, that's the piece you can get. So Edo was able to focus on academics, and that was the piece he could get, but he still needs a one-on-one. -on -one. My son doesn't have the ability to get great marks or pass and uh, you know graduate in college and do all of that but I can leave him alone for five days. So it's a choice that you will make. You probably won't get both if you have a severely challenged, especially in their motor skills and speech skills and, and self-help skills. If you have a severely challenged person, you're going to get one or the other. You're going to get independence or you're going to get academics. Understand that as you choose. Either is good, all is good, it's all wonderful, but know that you're picking. All right. I call it the need to know. Which, which child do I want to grow? What is his need to know? All right. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. And you've been listening to a new spin on autism, Answers. Thank you for being here. Because without you, I would just be talking to myself. Thank you for joining the show today. Lynette is the author of the refreshingly honest and at times hilarious new book, Miracles Are Made, A Real-Life Guide to Autism. You can purchase this and other materials by looking on the webtalkradio.net website and clicking on the covers. You can also click through to her Facebook page and check out any show you may have missed by looking in the archives. We'll see you soon for another edition of A New Spin on Autism. Answers. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. I can't hear.